Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Uh, I, I, we promised people last week that we'd give them a break from Europe, but... We lied. I'm getting into Europe. No, I am. I, I did slightly get into, uh, into Europe. But it's like the thing, isn't it? Like, one by one, the EU mm. referendum is going to kill all of us and take over our bodies. It was truly mad yesterday. People were talking about Bodicea. There was quite a long, sustained argument about whether the suffragettes would have been in or out so of the EU. You spent you spent International Women's Day with... International women. International women. Uh... Uh, you started with... It was Women for Britain, it was called. So that was the Out Campaign's launch, and that was in one great George Street, which is just around the corner from Westminster and the House of Commons, uh, in a big wood-panelled room. And so that was hosted by Suzanne Evans of UKIP. And I'd like to take a small detour here to say that whatever crazy power struggle is going on in UKIP is a really bad thing for anybody who wants UKIP to be better than it is. Because the people who are being sidelined, Patrick Flynn and um, Suzanne Evans, are both really good media performers. Now, I don't, you know, it's not in my interest to see UKIP succeed. But if you look at it from a pragmatic point of view, they're both really good speakers. And Suzanne Evans is really not, does not sound mad at all. Yeah, if you were, if you, if you, if you were... I mean, if, say, instead of people running parties because they shared an interest in them, and if they were just, like, randomly assigned, like, a draft pick in American yeah. football, those are not players you would be... No, you, you would not you, be benching you, them. You know, they're there. You wouldn't be going, let's send out Nigel Farage for the four millionth appearance um, to, to look slightly ranty. Um, so anyway, so she introduced it, and then we also had um, a couple of other MPs, the biggest of whom was Priti Patel, Cabinet Minister, who has now come... Um, come out for out, as it were, uh, alongside a couple of... Uh, uh, the, the phrase that keeps being used is small businesswomen, but that just makes them sound like they're like micro-pigs. I mean, I mean, she is also a small She is a very... <laughs> she um. is a, a, a delicate type of person. But it was quite interesting. So there are a couple of things I found about it. So Pretty's speech had... Um, so she referenced... Or she said, you know, British women have never been afraid of speaking up from... Bodicea to Elizabeth I to Elizabeth Garrett Anderson to Florence Nightingale. And I just, uh, that was, um, I, I, you know, I really struggled to kind of get back on the horse of listening to what everyone was talking about at that point, because I was just sort of there going, would Bodicea have cared about the common agricultural policy? I mean, Bodicea did uh, go to war against a project to unify the European continent. 
That's true. <laughs> See that that actually works. That's true. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna make, let's make John Elledge write a piece about one boat to see of of Ben and Outer because he would be the one to do it justice. Um, Amory Trevelyan, MP for Berwick on Tweed. Um, yeah, and then they had a video of the the 16 year old who appeared on Question Time. Do you remember her, Lexi Hill? Um, no, I am. I don't watch Question Time anymore. That's fair. She was doing basically a junior William Hague, where it's sort of slightly adorable that a teenager is talking about unconstitutional withdrawal of sovereignty, but also a bit alarming, and you kind of want to go, have some cider, go to the park, live a little, you're 16. But it would be great if she became a successful um, politician, and then she went through a like period where she needed to be... You know, like when they kept relaunching Ed Miliband and hoping that would fix the problem, and then obviously it didn't. Uh, you know, where they rebooted her, and you could have the headline, they're bringing Lexi back. <laughs> All the build-up for that I can't believe you spent that on building up that joke. Um, and then the final person was Emma... Well, so there was um, Pauline First, who, was a, who's, who runs an accountancy firm, and Emma Pullen, who is a former air hostess, that's how they introduced her, who took over her father's business, which turns out to be called the British Hovercraft Company. Now, did you know that her hovercrafts, which cost £50,000, if she wants to export them to Brazil, she has to pay 80% export tax on them, meaning I believe that they then cost 90 no, 84, 94. They, they cost a lot more. The hovercrafts cost a lot more if you try and send them to Brazil, was I the mean, point. Is there a booming market for hovercrafts? Apparently, there is, because this is what I didn't realise, is that that you use them if you're really rich to get to your yacht. They're like your, your launch. Obviously, you can't bring your yacht that close to shore, so you have a hovercraft to get you to your yacht. I mean, these people probably can afford to pay the extra excess. But also, I'm sorry, what? there are people who are so rich that they have... A hovercraft. A boat to get them to their boat. To get them to their boat. And it's the EU we're angry about? <laughs> I mean... Yeah. That was I, I was, that was that was one of those moments where... And then someone else um, told me quite a lot about uh, one of the reasons... You know, women would be angry about the fact... Because women care a lot about environmentalism, about the fact that there is a 20% VAT on solar panels. And actually, it could be much lower. But this is also the thing. I mean, um, Kate Hoey has mentioned this to me before. Is that, you know, that we all got very upset about the tampon tax... And actually, it can't go below 5% this VAT on sanitary products because that is the EU minimum. You know, that is one. Of, I know it, it's it's wonktacular, but you can't really, you know, weird VAT things are, you know, a lot of the things that we get upset about are down to, to Brussels. So that was the morning. I then took some hours in a darkened room to recover. And then at 6.30, I headed over to the hospital club. Uh, in London's trendy Soho district for the Women for In launch. Uh, and that one, we we got a no-show from Miriam gonzalez Durantes, which was quite sad because I had a lot of chat about her food blog that I was willing to go into Mum and Sons that I was um, quite up for raising with her. But that was hosted by June Sarpong, who is the kind of youth ambassador for the pro-EU case. Uh, Stella Creasy, Labour MP. Nikki Morgan, uh, Tory cabinet minister. And Natalie Bennett. Natalie Bennett told quite a good joke about fish. Everything was it you... just like a fish would have been more useful to the Green Party in its recent in the general election than me? <laughs> this fish is so old it can remember when the Green Party was an electoral force. No, it wasn't that. Um, it was about uh, the fact that, you know, the sort of outside... I'm not really going to not do justice to Natalie Bennett's quite good joke about fish. The outside were talking about, you know, we should, like, protecting, quotes, unquote, our fish. And it's not like fish have passports. 
I'll be honest with you, I mean, Natalie, I, I, Natalie Bennett's delivery added a lot was, to this joke. I was going to say, I think you definitely had to be there. And I say that as someone who just spent a good 10 minutes on a Lexi back joke. But here was the thing, right? So, you know, Pretty Patel, I thought, did a, a decent job. And this isn't, I'm a, a not to, I know we're, we get told off all the time for seeing the EU through the pre- prism of the Tory leadership contest. But Pretty Patel did a kind of pretty solid job, but it wasn't wildly exciting. I was actually really quite impressed by Nicky Morgan. Um, her speech was short, which after, you know, a whole day of listening to people talk about the EU was was a mercy. Uh, it, it was popular, like it was, you know, it was it was obviously kind of Tory inflected about security, but it wasn't, I sense that room was quite left wing and it wasn't alienating. Like she had managed to craft a message that appealed to people in London media and activists, you know, a lot of whom will come from uh, the Labour left side without kind of compromising herself. So that that made me, I would, t- you know, I would, I would I would buy Nikki Morgan at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think even if she can't go all the way, she has a, she's carving out a niche in the kind of Ken Clark role of being the one who can do an interview with The Guardian or with us yeah, or with well, The Observer the the or the the and kind of be sort of semi-reassured. The role that Cameron in his pre-Prime Minister phase, you know, the kind of, oh, I'm the nice one. Mm. Um, and that is always a useful asset in the Conservative Party's armoury in the same way that in times gone by Labour have always done quite well by having a mean one usually in the role of home or shadow home secretary. Yeah exactly so I, I thought that was quite an interesting development and um, and then uh, yeah like a lot of it I, and I think this is something that we're going to keep hearing about from this sort of those two women's campaigns is whether or not EU law has been instrumental in the equalities agenda or not that's a, that's what they're trying to contest um, so there was a big effort and it was really interesting to see politicians from UKIP, people like, you know, Pretty Patel is, I would say, you know, neo-Thatcherite. She's not. I mean, this is someone who's, who edited a book in which it claimed that the problem with the British economy is that Britain, quote-unquote, are among the greatest idlers in the world. Um, but then to see them sort of saying, well, don't worry, no, no one's going to come and take your maternity leave away, no one's going to come and take the maternity discrimination laws away, mm-hmm. was quite interesting, because obviously it's that big thing about, you know, once people have got rights, it's really hard to... those Like like they had this whole discussion around Obamacare, didn't they? Once people have got healthcare, they kind of go, oh, this is really... This is not, yeah. this is not scary. This is kind of really... Oh, now, you know... We're not dying from infected toenails anymore. This is quite good. Um, so that was my my big lesson. So a lot of fights about, you know, where the legislation comes from. Big cheers at the outlaunch every time anyone mentioned we're not going to be intimidated, we're not going to be bullied. Clearly, that's going to be a thing. I keep hearing from broadcasters that they're being lent on very heavily, you know, with accusations of, of bias. Um, so that's, you know, repeating the Scottish nationalist playbook, really, from um, from the last referendum. Uh, so and on course for a, a crushing de- defeat. Well, no, a crushing defeat, but then a one that they sort of will parlay into into re- resentment and grievance for a long time afterwards. Well, I, I think, think so. the thing is, I mean, obviously, this is clearly something which ex- you know, exists in people's minds, and I think there is a parallel, but. The, the thing is, it's obviously you've named lots of talented politicians from all different parties. There's no reason if you want to leave the EU to switch your vote at the next election, because if you were Labour, you've got Kate Hoey. If you were a Tory, you've got Priti Patel. If you were uh, Green, you've got Jenny Jones, for mm. goodness sake. Yeah, it's not. Whereas if you wanted to leave the United Kingdom, well... Yeah, there was one yeah. party that was offering you that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really important. And I think the other thing that we'll note is that... Um, it was quite sad. So um, Sarah Ludford, who I think is a, is a good politician, she's um, in the Lords, spoke up in a Q&A for the Lib Dems because obviously they don't have a woman. Yeah. So they're not allowed to join in any of the fun. So that's quite sad, isn't it? I think one of the things which is slightly sad about what happened to the Lib Dems is, you know, they, they lost um, some 
fairly good women MPs, um, but also particularly what happened to them in the European Parliament. Lib Dems love Europe. Uh, their MEPs were really happy. You know, they really wanted to be mm. MEPs. And to be frank, some of the MEPs who have replaced them are... Um, Clocking it in. Yeah, and there are UKIP MEPs who obviously don't want to be there full stop. And there are Labour MEPs who, if you look at their careers, have spent a, you know decades trying to become MPs who've gone, oh, I'll have a, have a punt at this job. And that is a bit of a shame because there were a lot of passionate Europeans who lost their job and it's not like they voted to go into coalition, but um, such is life. My final thought on this is that it's really interesting as well. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of grouse, there's always a lot of grousing about why are you doing specific initiatives for women? Isn't it really patronising to appeal to them as women? You know, women have so many more multifaceted identities, which is all true. But there is a bo- an acknowledgement on both sides. I think it's particularly interesting on the outside, as you wouldn't think they were naturally susceptible to this argument, that the optics of the campaign are dangerously bloke-tacular and that really risks putting off because you know women over 65 are quite eurosceptic and they're quite likely to turn out on the day and if they feel that this is just some kind of a bunch of blokes shouting at each other they're not going to turn out so even the out campaign who don't strike me as the most um you know progressive right on feminists by and large know that they can't have women and actually both the other thing that was noticed about both launches had non-white women on the panel mm. as well so they both accepted much better than some of the uh, previous instalments that you need to have a, a panel that is slightly beginning to look more like the country than George Galloway, Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, George Osborne having an argument. Yeah, and the yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, the danger, of course, for them is that they, as one one member of one of the Leave campaigns, is that they get into a zone, particularly with older women, where they what they call the yes dear zone, where people are just like, oh, it's what my cranky. Yeah. husband or great granddad believes it's crazy but we just let him let him shout into the void i'm just going to end with a question for our listeners which i will answer at the end of you ask us which is there is one question according to britain thinks that is the biggest predictor of how you will vote in the eu referendum can you guess what that question is I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman, Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So Jeremy Corbyn returned to the Parliamentary Labour Party this week, having um, been unable to take questions the week before due to a TV appearance. And his speech, he gave a speech as well, um, was rather interesting because, as was briefed to journalists afterwards, he told MPs to stop the sniping, stop the name-calling, stop the backbiting, let's get, um, let's unify and uh, take on the Tories. And what's interesting about that is there's actually been rather less sniping and and backbiting from MPs recently, partly because the EU referendum means people have been less interested in Labour, so people have been giving fewer interviews, but also because I think some of Corbyn's critics and opponents have recognised that it's counterproductive to attack him in, in the media each week. So it's therefore interesting that Corbyn's now playing this card and many MPs believe the clear strategy is to um, paint them as the enemy, as the troublemakers in advance of what will likely be poor local election results. It's a new approach to talk to the press. Is it being uh, trailed elsewhere? Are, Are they starting to get on the front foot about the budget next week? 
There's not much sign of of spin from Labour. Uh, that may change um, by the weekend. They did put out um, a poster on uh, on the Google tax deal, uh, mocking George Osborne's unfun fair, uh, which was uh, derided by some journalists. But actually, as political posters go, wasn't too bad. What's what I think is still missing in some ways is is a consistent message from from Jeremy Corbyn. So when he won the leadership, even those who didn't want him to win. Uh, we're looking forward to an all-out assault on austerity, a consistently left-wing message, and they hoped it might appeal to voters in Scotland, to voters in, in urban areas, and perhaps to the country at large as the spending cuts continue, despite what the Tories say is the strength of the economy. But as his performance at, at Prime Minister's Questions showed on, on Wednesday, Jeremy Corbyn has has very little message discipline. He finds it very hard to stick to a script and he takes a scattergun approach. It did feel to me as if he threw the kitchen sink at David Cameron in the hope that something would stick and and it turned out that nothing did. Uh, that then the things still aren't sticking to Cameron is part of why uh, a coup attempt is being talked about once again. There's a legal aspect to it this time, isn't there? Yes, there is. So a disputed issue is whether Jeremy Corbyn, were he to be challenged, would get on the ballot automatically or whether he would have to reseek nominations from MPs and MEPs. And of course, he would struggle to reach the, potentially struggle to reach the required number because people who lent him nominations uh, during the last uh, selection contest will be maybe unprepared to, to do so again. Um, and the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy is trying to change the rules uh, hoping to at the next uh, at the NEC meeting in July um, so that Corbyn would be automatically on the ballot. His team, however, are saying that were he challenged today, he would be automatically on the ballot. But there is no sign that this coup is is anything other than, than discussion at the moment. There's still no agreements on, on who the candidate would be. Uh, the fear of some is that Corbyn would indeed get on the ballot one way or another and that he would win by a similar margin to last time, and that, of course, would, would strengthen his leadership. Um, I think others are hoping that um, even if they don't succeed this time, it will at least give them a platform to make the argument that, in their view, he's he's unelectable. And they think, um, frankly, they, they think Labour's position is so bad that they've got very little to lose. Well, on that cheerful note, uh, we'll be back next week. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. we're going to sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of social networks. We're joined by our tech correspondent, Barbara Speed, and... Uh... Me, I'm still here, I haven't <laughs> left. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the obvious kind of peg for this is really the fact that uh, Twitter is 10 on March the 21st. Uh, the first tweet sent by I Jack I didn't know Dorsey. I shared a birthday with Twitter. You do. Oh, sorry. It's the day that all evil came into the world. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the first tweet by Jack Dorsey was just setting up my Twitter... Uh, without any uh, um, vowels, because he wanted to be able to use a five-digit uh, texting code, in case you wanted to do that. And also the idea was that 140 characters was so that you could fit in your tweet and a username within an SMS, because much of it happened by SMS. This is the, the pain of somebody who had to go and reread Hatching Twitter in order to write a piece for the FT about Twitter. So I've got a lot of things to unload. It was nearly called Friendstalker Smussy 
Was that because of the SMS thing, though? Smussy. Smussy. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, I don't know how that We've didn't get off the ground. a long time ago. And there was something else. And they, they nearly called it, like, Vibrate or something like that. And that's how they got from there to Twitch to Twitter. Um, and I didn't realise it took until November 2006 for someone to do the first at reply. Yeah, well, another thing about Twitter is it took quite a while to become popular. But if you look at the graph of its sort of users and stuff, it takes kind of like a, a year to kind of reach the levels that it then enjoyed for quite a few, quite a few years. That's interesting because um, I joined in June 2007. Are you saying that that's <laughs> you brought that's the when swarms it's with you? Yeah. <laughs> but like MySpace or something like that, they tended to have like a huge spike at the beginning, which they then maintained and then died like five years later. Yeah, you had a nice analogy about um, Henry VIII's wives and social uh, networks, which you've written yeah. up. But would you like to take our listeners through it? Yeah, well, it relies on the slightly mean assumption that our short attention spans of social media users are quite similar to (laughs) Henry VIII's lecherous um, approach to wives. So is the idea Um, that he tried to have a baby unsuccessfully for a long time with MySpace? (laughs) Yeah, I think the idea just being that um, similarly to Henry VIII, he had like a a period of time in which he seemed to move through wives quite quickly. And I think that equally in the social media realm, we moved through quite a few big hitters quite quickly. So... Friends Reunited, MySpace, but Facebook and Twitter have been around for a relatively long time without showing signs of of complete collapse. I mean, they've had their ups and downs, but um, yeah, so in summary, my conclusion was that Twitter is Anne of Cleves because Anne of Cleves was uh, Henry VIII's wife for a short amount of time, but she then kind of divorced him quite quickly and managed to stick around for ages without being beheaded. Yeah, she just hang out in some house in sort of Kent or yeah, somewhere, didn't she? Yeah, just Twitter, hangs out with the media elite, doesn't really pick up any other new users. I thought that was really interesting that they stopped releasing their data for how many um, mm. tweets were sent a day. And it also revealed to me this this problem of the kind of Silicon Valley mindset about growth being absolutely everything. So the kind of classic idea if you launch something like this is that you get a load of money and you grow as fast as you can. And then once you've captured everybody on it, that's when you decide how you're going to extort the cash out of them. And the thing is that, you know, that that's a reflective, again, of the advertiser funding model. You know, Twitter's users are incredibly elite you know, if you actually charged people to use it, they could all of those people could pay. It's just that they won't pay now. Like now we are so mm-hmm. inured to the idea that, that you shouldn't have to pay for that kind of stuff. But I think that one of the things that's interesting about the way that Twitter succeeded is it's, it succeeded by being totally public, right? It grew up because it, the barrier to entry was really low. You could go and find anyone's tweets. You could yeah. read anything. And what's interesting is that the social media networks that died basically without a trace, which are Bieber and now MySpace, which is completely gone. Um, that they were very customizable, and what's interesting is that people have gone for Facebook and Twitter, which are much more stripped back. But they won't um, even let you put your own background on and stuff like that anymore. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, but yeah, because my last MySpace message, now lost to the ether, was off to university and Facebook! Exclamation mark. Wow, did you join so Facebook when it was um, when it was still only available to people at university? Uh, I yes, I think I did. Yeah. Wow. Ah, oh, good times. Super elite. <laughs> but, that's, but that's why it's really interesting to see that, fa- that actually Facebook managed to grow. It managed to give itself that kind of aura of excitedness, right? Because you, at, the, at the beginning, you had to have a university email address to sign up. Mm-hmm. And they would always kind of try and get the cool kids at a university to sign up and then do it. Which is why, you know, to talk about sad, now moribund social networks, Ello. Do you remember Ello, which was very popular mm-hmm. for about two weeks? Because that was in beta and, you know, you had to kind of get an invite to get into it. People really love that. I remember when, this is this don't, don't brace yourself, Stephen. This is how old I am. I remember when Gmail, you still had to get an invite to be allowed on <laughs> Gmail. I got an invite to be on Gmail really early, and I was really super excited. 
Um, although I still had to put a numeral after my name. And so what, you got like Tyrannosaurus dot Rex Gmail <laughs> invited you to... Well, no, but this is, this is the... This is, <laughs> I mean, surely you must have... Actually, both of you have got relatively boring names, but this is the peril of having a really boring name, right? I have to be... I have to get first, to first and stake out my yeah. pitch on any possible I mean, social network that might go we anywhere. We both have great names. I share a name with a war criminal, <laughs> and Barbara has the name of a superhero. Speed, and, not or a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> I have the name of a, of, a, of a. This is the. This is my, one of my sad things. I have the name of a really wonderful Holocaust survivor. She's in Auschwitz, and she wrote a really beautiful memoir called *A Time to Speak*. And because she died about five years ago, I'm steadily pushing her down the Google rankings. Oh, no. My success is directly at the expense of somebody whose works are far more profound and moving <laughs> than mine. It's um, it's really tragic. But she so basically are worse than the Nazis. They couldn't kill her, but oh god, that was I'm gonna get fired for that joke. <laughs> it's okay. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. It's fine. But anyway, then, but then maybe I can redress that balance by saying that go and read her book because it's really beautiful. And she made a great life for herself and was a dance teacher and a choreographer. And she deserves better than to be below some Civ piece that I've written about weasels or whatever happens on the Google front page. Um, but so take us through the death of some of these. So yeah, various social networks have come and gone what happened to i mean bebo is bebo still out there no so bebo is funny it, it launched slightly after myspace but was basically for all intents and purposes kind of the same um the successful networks that came later had something new to offer and it struggled on it was relaunched it was bought a couple of times um, and it's now relaunched as a messaging app so if you go to bebo.com you're redirected to uh, the itunes app store Thanks. and myspace had a particularly strange fate didn't it yeah, so MySpace was bought by Justin Timberlake um, a few years ago and was then... No, a... what? Hang on, no, hang yeah. what? No, I was, I was so ready for you to say by Rupert Murdoch and I was going to go, oh, yes, no, it was bought by Justin Timberlake. Before it was bought by, Timberlake. It was bought by time, a... it was bought by uh, Justin Timberlake, who... And the investors don't know how to act. Anyway, sorry, Barbara, back to you. <laughs> I really oh. thought... I thought, oh my God, Stephen hey. made a sexy back joke in the previous thing and I thought, wow, is Stephen going to do two sexy back jokes in a row? Yeah, well, they tried to bring MySpace back as a, uh, like, a music... <laughs> focused site like a more almost like a kind of spotify with playlists and stuff that was very short-lived and then the site was sold to time inc um who then said that they were going to use all the users data to learn about how to do their digital advertising so it was literally just sold to be chopped up basically that's just quite a sad fate for something that was massive it was huge and friends reunited i assume they were just killed by were they just killed by facebook because now obviously we don't need to go oh i wonder where my friends are from high school you're like oh god pregnant again are you yeah i think they slightly missed the boat in that they were a subscription model and they were the only thing out there so they got pretty like um, complacent, I suppose. Can I ask whether or not you think Tumblr counts as a social network? So there's now a new definition, which is community websites, which is something that Tumblr, YouTube, everything else all come under. Um, so I think it falls under that. I'm not sure if I would... Call... It's tricky. I would, I would call that more a blogging platform. I'm going to end by asking you a difficult question. In 10 years' time... Which, if any, of the current social networks will make it to, you know, which are they going to make it to their 20th birthday? Facebook. But I think it won't last much longer than that because it will be a bit of a Friends Reunited, I think. Because people, enough people, you've reached a billion people, it's going to take you a while to die. But I think already young people are not using Facebook in the way they used to, so I think... What are the young people using, Barbara? Snapchat. The Snapchat. Are <laughs> um, all using the Snapchat. In terms of our long-term Instagram. future, does Snapchat drive traffic? Um, 
No. Well, BuzzFeed claims that about a quarter of their users come from Snapchat. Yeah, but you don't... Right, so Snapchat has Discover on it, and then lots of platforms are on there. BuzzFeed, uh, Daily Mail, do you think? And New they York do, Times. <laughs> but they do quite snazzy things where they, they opens with a GIF and you swipe through and, and you read a story, but it, but it's optimised for mobile. I mean, this is the kind of thing, and we don't have time to talk about this now, but we'll come back to it, about optimising for mobile and optimising for these platforms means mostly junking all the things that cause you to load slowly, i.e. ads. ads i.e. the things that make you any money. So I think Snapchat Discover could offer massive reach. The reason why we're not animating GIFs, even as we speak, of Jeremy Corbyn popping out of a cake to accompany some of your fine articles, Stephen, is that you know it's very difficult to, to monetize. You know, but what's those the people point of... are on there in the hopes it will be monetizable. And to be fair, people said Snapchat wasn't monetizable. And now those people are paying 100 grand a day to appear on Snapchat. You know, these are companies that are now just sitting like smog on a huge hoard of cash. Mm-hmm. And you know some of that's user-generated content some of that's because they offer a portal to the most interesting news and media content but, but not an enormous amount of it is mm-hmm. or certainly down, yeah. a reasonable amount is, i mean i know that there are companies that say they're very happy with the amount of money that they make from, from facebook instant articles but it's not it's not like a new there's no new gold rush online for for journalism and if ad blocking comes in on mobile we're all screwed so basically kids turn off your ad blockers send us money we don't even know it's Christmas time. <laughs> but this is why you're working in a bookshop, me working for, you know, um, burger vans. I don't know, Barbara, what job you had as a um, as a teenager. You know, you need to... Shoe shops. Yeah, you need to really Big keep up those, those skills because I don't know oh, if yeah, any of us are going to be here. After the internet kills journalism, bookshops are going to be still around. <laughs> burger vans will be, be fine. The but, but there will be no, no one... Oh, no, Deliveroo will have probably meant... Yeah, yeah. it's all we over. We could all work for Deliveroo, to be fair. I don't Get like bike. bikes. <laughs> right. Are you an Uber driver? I can't drive. Why? Oh, I'm Alan, un- you really are. I'm unfit for the app <laughs> economy, I'm afraid. Well, on that depressing note, thanks, Barbara. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Barbara, and we present Skylines, the new podcast from City Metric, the new statesman's urbanism site. Every two weeks, you can hear us talk about cities, geography, and the human impact on the environment, and test our contention that maps make a great topic for radio. You can find us on iTunes or Acast. Check it out. And uh, welcome to this week's You Ask Us. What have people asked? Actually, do you know what? I've had so many. Uh, the really great thing is I've had loads and loads of, of responses um, from our last Ask Us, which was fantastic. Somebody has asked about whether or not we will be um, paying a little less attention to Europe, which I'm obviously very pro, but also a little more attention to some of the regional elections that are going on. We know that there are elections not only in London, but Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales and local elections. And yes is the answer to that. Yes, we will. We're going to do a special um, elections podcast. So... Uh, you know. Hold on to your hat. Yeah, exactly. Don't. Uh... Although I think the question we were asked most is, why do we have such terrible taste in films? To which I reply, why do you all have such terrible taste in films? Yeah, I, I was surprised don't abandon us, by the number of people willing to defend Birdman. But yeah, very quickly, Stephen, what this week have people asked us? Um, so uh, well, the question we got it was, is the focus on 2020 damaging Labour's, you know, Labour's duty of being a good opposition today? I think that's a really interesting question because I think it definitely the, the the perception in Westminster, whether you are you know agree with it or not, that Labour will not win the next election damages them because it means that everything that they say is automatically downgraded. You know everything they say is automatically less interesting. If you are the minister who is in charge of 
road building, saying that a road is going to be built through this particular constituency is incredibly interesting, particularly to the people who live in that constituency. If in six months' time you might be the minister who gets to make that decision, your words require salience. So the problem that Labour has at the moment is if nobody thinks that they've got any prospect of being a government, you know, their, their opinion is sort of irrelevant. You know, the Lib Dems have faced exactly this problem. They just, I think the hardest thing as an opposition is actually just getting anyone to pay any attention to what you say at all. You really have to work really hard to get even on the pitch, really. Yeah, I mean, I also think, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'm going to challenge the premise of the question somewhat. So next week, we've got the budget. Um, How will Labour win the next election? Well, they need to show them the Conservatives are bad at running the economy and that they will be better at running the economy. So the day-to-day challenge of opposing the budget and winning 2020, they're not in conflict, they're linked. I mean, the point of being a good opposition is to show that the government is not as good at being the government as you would be. Uh, But they are in that Lib Dem, William Hague zone at the moment where much of Westminster sees them as an afterthought. I thought it was really interesting. Listeners, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I did just see scrolling past me on Twitter the idea that it's Corbyn's 100th question at PMQs and he hasn't asked one about the economy yet. He's focused primarily on health and welfare. And I think that's a kind of, I mean, I, I... I wonder if, you know, obviously lots of things technically come under the economy, so I wonder if that can really be true. But it's certainly for somebody who I think, the, uh, you know, this is my hunch, the primary reason that people voted Jeremy Corbyn was anti-austerity. You know, they, they thought that Labour had not made a good enough case against Tory cuts in the last parliament. And that seems to be very strange that that's not his focus in... So I am the lone defender in Westminster of Jeremy Corbyn's approach to PMQs, which probably means I'm wrong. No, I mean, I, li- I like it. Uh, I think that bringing more people in is, is, but is good. I mean, I think that actually it makes a sense not to ask necessarily about things which are on the news agenda, because it comes back to the whole, if you're not bored, no one else has heard you. So it sort of makes sense to focus on his core issues, which is health and welfare and health and welfare. Although despite the fact that this is not the perception of most people in the Labour Party, if you look at the post-mortems to the, of the defeat, what most swing voters thought Labour talked about was health and welfare, health and welfare. I guess health is, a, is, a, is definitely the bigger win of those two, because just saying, I love the NHS, the Tories will kill the NHS, actually just that is a really resonant message, because it plays on themes that people already have embedded within their consciousness. And it allows you to run an election on a fear message, which, if you can run on fear, you should always run on fear. Yeah, well, we'll, um, we'll tell that to the angry people at the EU launch. But that's it, you asked us. Um, there will be more asking of us. Uh, someone else actually also came in to ask whether or not we could provide some commentary on speeches, like good things that people want now are asking me for homework after I ask it homework. So that's something else that we're going to look at, about you know who actually has said things that are interesting and meaty and substantial. Substantive. You know, I would go. And re- I would definitely recommend reading Michael Gove's speech when he came out. You might disagree with it, but he did lay out a very eloquent case, more eloquently than uh, Boris in his Telegraph column a couple of days later, and that's pretty easily available online. And Tristram Hunt is delivering a series of lectures, which are they're definitely interesting. They mostly seem to be incredibly off pieces and about some fairly niche subjects, but they are definitely worth reading. And then um, the McDonnell Economic Community thingy lectures are very good yes there we go we've given you homework this time readers and as a bonus easter egg in the podcast uh, i'm going to give you the answer to the question i asked earlier what is the one question that predicts how you're going to vote in the EU referendum okay so what i was told by britain thinks is the question that best predicts your voting intention is did you go to university 
And that's an interesting question because it speaks to themes we talked about before about the idea about you know, graduates and, and the way that they vote, but also because it, it complicates that idea that the over 60s particularly are much more ardently Eurosceptic. That is a generation where only one in 10 people went to university as opposed to the younger generations where it's much higher. So that's a good one. I think they say that if you did go to university, you are 70-30 in favour of remain and the other way around it is 60-40 in favour of leave. However, they did say that the absolute best predictor of an in-vote, even better than that, but obviously applies to a much smaller subset of people, is do you read The Guardian? Oh, it's weird to think that uh, if we say and by a percentage point, it probably will be the, be the responsibility of Harold Wilson and the Open University. Well, that's a, that's a cheery thought. Yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.